Welcome to another episode of the Josias Podcast. Um, I'm Elliot, standing in for Joel this week uh, as host, I guess, and um, I'm joined by Potter Edmund, as usual, uh, and hello, and uh, Daniel, uh, who is uh, uh, coming on this week to talk with us about the resurrection. Um, so uh, we, the music we just listened to was uh by bieber and remind me what was the title so this is from the missa salis burgensis which is a huge baroque mass that bieber composed for the cathedral in salzburg a polychoral mass with multiple choirs and orchestras and uh several different organs um all playing at once and this is from the creed the et resurrexit uh fittingly for our theme today Pater Edmund, it was uh, your father, actually, who first introduced me to this Mass. Uh, I, I'd gone over to his house uh, to discuss something, and he, 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 uh, we were discussing music, and he played this for, for us as we were listening. It was just glorious. Yeah, excellent. I should say Daniel is, was a student of my father's at Avimri University, but he was a fellow student of mine at Thomas Aquinas College. Nice. So. We go way back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the cathedral in Salzburg has five organs. There are four. Um, there's one, a huge one in the back, in the choir loft. And then there are four balconies, um, sort of, where the uh, the transept uh, meets the main nave. And in the, there, each of those balconies has an organ. And Bieber had musicians, other musicians up there as well. Are they all connected to one um, console or, or keyboard or... No, so no. You have to have why, why would five have different organists. Five different organs in, in one church. What was the motivation? Well, it, the Baroque is all about more is better. <laughs> 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 okay. I, have a, I have a confrere here in Heiligenkreuz who's a, a sculptor. And he likes to say, less is more. To which I always respond, no, more is better. Nice. <laughs> 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 um Okay, so speaking of, of more, I guess, and superabundance, um, I guess we should start on the topic. Uh, <laughs> I'm not hugely prepared to, to host, so I'm going to ad-lib some questions, I guess, um, based on uh, things that I'm curious about. And, Excellent. Uh, you two both have a superior theological uh, education, so hopefully you can help me and, and our audience. Um, so... First off, I guess the the grounding question is why should we talk about the resurrection at all? Uh, maybe uh, you know the, the 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 passion of Christ is 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 sort of the meat of the matter. Why does the resurrection? What does it add to that? Yeah. Well, accidentally, the reason why I wanted to talk about the resurrection today, I was the one who proposed the topic, uh, is just because we're about to celebrate Easter, which is the primary feast of Christendom. And last, I guess it was last Easter that we did a podcast on atonement. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would make sense to now talk about um, resurrection. But maybe, Daniel, you can say, how does the resurrection complete uh, what begins in the Passion? Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot that could, we could say about this, I suppose. Um even completing the the notion of atonement, um, now, yeah, I've, what what you have is that the Christ, the whole in, of the incarnation is ordered toward um, salvation, uh, but not not just a, sort of this merely uh, spiritual reality, but the salvation of man as man, um, and that uh, involves uh, there's. 
the ancient uh, patristic and even pre-patristic you see this theme kind of in the old testament as well in the pentateuch but uh the you'll hear uh the, the fathers talk about the recapitulation of creation in christ and the restoration of all things uh now people have gone kind of crazy with that theme and have and have come to various heretical positions about it <laughs> but it's still it's it, there's still a truth about it and so mankind's salvation as man would not be complete if uh, it only involved uh, the beatitude of the soul because man is not simply a soul but is a, a body soul composite and so the completion of man's salvation can only be had in resurrection yeah if you look at the the early liturgy well early descriptions of the liturgy um, for example Egeria's description of the liturgy in Jerusalem, the Hagiopolite liturgy. On Sunday, they would celebrate the whole Paschal mystery. So on um, in the, the vigil of Sunday, on Saturday during the night, they would read uh, from the gospel the, the passion narrative uh, and the resurrection narrative and the ascension narrative, seeing it as one movement, kind of the 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 way also the current Easter vigil um, connects this mystery to the Exodus, sort of going passing through the Red Sea as the symbol of death and then coming out on the other side in life. Um, the same thing happens uh, in the Paschal mystery. Jesus goes through death into life. So it's not complete until he's ascended uh, into heaven when he's taken his place in glory interesting so um yeah so the the okay so the the passion resurrection and ascension form a sort of triad that represent the the redemption of human nature is that is that the idea or part of it yeah so the passion um atones for uh what for the sin that has has corrupted human nature, turned us away from God by being a, a perfect expression of Christ's love for the Father, a giving of himself to the Father by delivering himself over to death. Um, and then it follows from that atonement that he's given new life in the resurrection and then glorified in the ascension. So uh, one one question that comes up a lot, and this is sort of a, a nine-year-old's catechetical, catechetical question, um, is so uh, Jesus is resurrected, and uh, we're told that his body is a glorified body, uh, and you know, in the in the Gospels we see him walking through things and, and appearing, you know, sort of not bound by normal physical laws. What's up with that? Uh, in what sense, you know, this glorified body then ascends into heaven and is located where exactly? Uh, um, there are all of these sort of odd uh, physical questions about the nature of uh, the glorified flesh of Christ, right? Right. Yeah, so that gets into some of the what they call the properties or the, the attributes of the glorified body question. It is very interesting. Uh, it's particularly interesting in the case of Christ because um, what uh, Aquinas will argue, uh, don't ask me where, I can't remember off the top of my head right now, uh, is that the, the power of moving through the walls, you know, entering into upper room, he says that's actually not, doesn't belong to Christ according to the, uh, the resurrection. That that would have belonged to Christ, even just in virtue of the power of the hypostatic uh, union, that it was a, a miraculous act, and he says because it was the same sort of thing that he uh, had done in uh, the nativity. Oh, so the the teaching of the church is that Mary is virgin before, during, and after her uh, the the nativity of Christ. Which seems to necessitate that uh, that the church maintains that uh, Mary also maintained the physical signs of virginity, um, 
and uh, so that Christ would have had to pass through the the womb and, and been born in this sort of miraculous fashion. Uh, that's and that's seem we seem to be uh, 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 compelled to hold such a thing, mm-hmm. right? But nevertheless, uh, the Christ very um, consciously. Um, does that sign of going through the locked doors after his resurrection. And it's also to reveal to the apostles uh, what the goal of their lives is, which is to be conformed to him in that way. I mean, if you look at, if you look at uh, the human nature, we say human nature is wounded by original sin. Um, And through the envy of the devil, death came into the world. But I think you have to distinguish between um, the wounds of original sin that is just depriving us of something that was already beyond nature, a, a kind of um, preternatural uh, gift that that we would have had apart from sin, and the wound of original sin that's really um, damaging nature as nature so everything that comes to be passes away as the philosophers say so in a way that's it's natural for a um a material being that comes into being for it to pass away for it to die and obviously the soul is immortal because it's capable of a of knowing eternal truth so there would be a part of man which would never die even apart from the resurrection, um, namely the soul, but that the body is separated from the soul and corrupts, uh, that seems in a way to follow from the nature of of material um, reality that comes to be and passes away. So the, the idea is that Adam and Eve were given kind of, or would have been given um, a, a special gift from God that was in a way beyond their natural power that would have preserved them from bodily death and so what happens to us in the resurrection uh, presupposes our nature and heals our nature but it also elevates our nature and gives it a power that it wouldn't have simply from its natural beginnings Hmm. so that um i guess okay so if if the if the gospels ended um like uh, I, I think there's there's a theory, isn't there, that uh, that Mark's gospel initially ended without the resurrection or so, something like this, right? Have you encountered <laughs> well, it's this? Thomas oh. Jefferson's <laughs> gospel, right? So, so that it's, the it's kind of implied, but it's not actually discussed in the narrative, and then the the final section is uh, is an, an addendum. Anyway, I, not that I subscribe to that at all, but um, supposing the the gospels did end with the crucifixion and we had all the same theology what what would what would be lacking uh then we would still have this notion of of divine redemption but maybe not the same um uh superabundance of it uh that comes from the promise of um uh an an impeccable uh state of beatitude to come um so i guess the glorified christ is a representation of um man and his sort of intended uh supernaturally perfected eternal state right um where in heaven the just will will be incapable of sin uh or a decay or any anything like that any kind of corruption yeah yeah, yeah. If if we f- if we follow, uh, I mean, if we listen to Saint Paul, if I mean in Corinthians fifteen, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, is what he right. says. Yeah, that th- this is uh, uh, necessary for the completion of the, of man and uh, man's salvation. Um, then this this gets into more of where where I'm researching and writing my dissertation on 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 why 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 you have this necessity of the resurrection and it's not 
Thomas will argue that it's not simply uh, a superabundance, like it's like oh it's something extra, but it but he argues that it's necessary that if God's going to save man, uh, so it's necessary consequently that um, that he saved man as man, right? And so the separated soul for Thomas uh, is not. He says uh, in, in that same place in his commentary in Corinthians 15, he says, well, my soul is not I. And so simply the beatitude of the soul or the life of the immortal soul is not enough. But uh, we, 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 want the, we desire and we long for restoration uh, in our complete person, which uh, would require then the resurrection of the body. So... Yeah, <laughs> and in a way, it's entailed. Um, it's entailed in the victory over death that he wins in dying, that he will then. I mean, if he just died and then didn't rise from the dead, and we we still thought that his death was uh, atoned for for sin and so on, mm-hmm. it would be like having victory without the spoils of victory right you know he dies but then nothing happens there's a, it's kind of logical necessity that having destroyed death he then rises to new life and it, it's also worth noting that you know in in our experience in our time having living in a post-christian society this idea of resurrection is very common to us but it's and and some people try to propose uh, falsely that you know oh in the in the ancient world, there were dying and resurrecting gods all over the place. But this isn't, in fact, true. And it's, in fact, the, the resurrection was a real scandal for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and most people didn't even understand what it meant. Even even his own, the apostles didn't, uh, manifestly, uh, N.T. Wright points this out correctly, uh, that, <laughs> that uh, the, the apostles didn't seem to understand what was meant when Christ said, you know, the Son of Man will rise again on the third day. You know, there, it's, it might seem evident to us, but it certainly wasn't evident to them. Yeah. And it wasn't, I mean, the same thing, the, the, the great scandal when Paul's preaching in the Areopagus in Athens, everybody's kind of following along with his argument until he says, he starts talking about the resurrection of the dead, and then they laugh at him. It's like, what? This is okay. This is nonsense. You know, yeah. who is this clown? We, we, uh, we'll we'll listen to you another time. They say <laughs> 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 the ancient way of uh, politely getting out of a conversation you don't want to have a part of anymore. <laughs> right. So the I mean, many of them knew about the immortality of the soul, which is proved by many of the Greek philosophers but none of the philosophers think that there's going to be a resurrection of the body. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, of course they they don't because there's no natural evidence for such a thing, right? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's simply not in proportion to to the power of the soul to do such a thing, right? And it's not and further you especially if you hold as many of the Greeks did had a strong sort of uh dualism uh, in their thought, then it would be seen as like, why would you do this if the soul's finally been liberated from the body? <laughs> why would you go back? Uh, right. Yeah. Um, and, and especially if the only idea you had of a body is a corrupt, uh, corruptible body. Mm-hmm. And one. There's in the encyclical Space Salvi, um, Pope Benedict XVI raises a, an objection to Christianity that um, arises in early modern times, namely of the objection is that Christianity is, is individualistic, that you, it's contrary to love of the common good because Christians, they're just concerned about the salvation of their souls. Um, and so they, they're concerned just, you know, with keeping their gloves clean and so on. And they won't, uh, they ha- that sort of alienates them from the body politic um, and its concerns. Um, but I think the obviously the objection is false, and one way of seeing that it's false uh, is by by looking at the the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, Daniel, you you gave a paper at a conference that we were on the common good that we went to together once about um, the res, the resurrection and the common good. Maybe you can say a little bit 
about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I was just, I was, uh, you had mentioned that we were going to talk about that. So I was looking over what I said before, uh, <laughs> making sure I remembered. Uh, so, yeah, I, so there in that paper, I'm arguing in particularly, in particular, that Christ's resurrection, uh, has has the account of the common uh, of a common good and for us um and that it's and it that, that's connected with what we've been saying up to this point about the need uh for resurrection the need for resurrection for the restoration so uh, what i argue then is that Christ's resurrection has the account of cause is uh, to be an extrinsic formal cause. Intrinsic, it's that towards which others aim, um, and Uh, likewise has the account of the good um so so that but since an exemplar cause is the cause of a genus uh and thus there then uh then you have to say that that the that if christ's resurrection is an exemplar cause then it has the very account of the common good um Is it becomes a common good for all humankind. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't. Maybe that was too too fat. Yeah. It will, yeah. Yeah. Let's try to unravel that a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So um, okay. So so Christ's resurrection is is it's an extrinsic uh, exemplar cause. It's an exemplar cause meaning that it's it's a sort of manifestation of the perfection of a specific form that all other instances of that form. Uh, tend toward as their perfection, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I, I guess the question I have, so, okay, so Christ's resurrection is the, the common good in the sense that uh, all, all human nature tends toward it as its perfection. Um, so my question would be, if it's the that seems to get us to it being the common good individually, but how do we understand uh, the resurrection as a as a sort of manifestation of of the political common good, or you know, the good of humans uh, as political beings? The the unity of mankind, Christ as new Adam, um, so. But if he's if he's new Adam, then he's in a certain way a cause of all mankind, and of course we get this idea of new Adam uh, in Saint Paul, uh, in Romans, and then uh, old Adam, and the the consequences of the old Adam being death, and now we have a new Adam. He's got to be a principle of all mankind in a certain way. Can can I interrupt you? Just the, it's it's I'm excited that. Uh, we we hit this point because I was thinking about this this morning as I was showering. <laughs> so, like, um, so okay, so the 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 I, the original there's a unity of all humanity in Adam uh, as the principle of the species, right? Um, and this has something to do with uh, with original sin and the transmission of original sin to every individual human. Could you could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I, so I spent a huge portion of my licentiate thesis talking about this very question. Um, uh, so that, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that we can say about this. It's always dangerous to ask Daniel about something. <laughs> <laughs> he says, oh my goodness, how much time have you got? <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah. So finally, we we maintain we want to maintain the unity of all mankind, uh, sort of in Adam, because of the doctrine of original sin. That's one of the the principal causes for that. 
uh, the, for a push to maintain that doctrine. Um, so then you have to kind of think, well, how is all mankind in Adam? Well, it's, it's kind of easier to see with Adam. Genetic origins of man, you know, monogenesis, which is, seems to be the, the doctrine that we're compelled to hold, um, then he's the father of us all. Uh, but it's more than just that, because the scriptures don't just say that Adam is the father of us all, but, but, but that Eve was also taken from Adam's side. And so then you see that there's a certain privileged place that Adam had in being made first and alone. And it's kind of a, a marvelous thing that that because that, that wasn't uh, as far as I can tell. I don't think that maintain that that's a necessary thing. What you find then is that Adam. Yeah, well, this is kind of explaining the the less known by the even less known. Uh, but, uh, where Adam Adam acts ends up acting kind of like a the 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 prima mobile as it were for all. All of mankind. Okay, <laughs> and so what it is is that's the doctrine from Aristotle that that um, that God uh, that there's that all motion is is united is caused by the first mobile thing that God moves. Um, so God moves the first mobile, and all things are moved uh, according to this first mobile thing, and maintains the unity of motion, etc. A lot of people have. Uh, argued against this, of course. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Uh, John Brungart has done work kind of defending uh, the account of the prima mobile and things like that. But we don't need to do that. All we need to see is that there's a certain way in which Adam is, uh, becomes as a, as a, as a quasi-equivocal uh, um, cause and universal cause of all mankind. So he's still in the genus, right, mm -hmm. of mankind, but he's... But because he was made first and alone as, and is the source of all, then he has sort of a privileged position with relationship to the whole as a principle of all mankind. Sure. Um, so he's the, he's the mold, or I, maybe he's, he's the original uh, figure that is used to create the mold from which all humanity is cast. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah. So there was, strictly speaking, um, yeah. So yeah. So Adam, so the prima mobile is, is simply the 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 universal cause of all motion, uh, something that stands outside the genus of all other mobile things. But Adam has uh, the ratio of universal cause um, because. Just as the prima mobile receives motion immediately first from God, so also Adam received humanity, the, the human nature, directly from God, and not in a mediated fashion. Which, and you see that borne out uh, stunningly in the, the Gospel of Luke, right? Where he, where going through the genealogy, he ends with Adam, who is the son of God, right? Um, so this is kind of a marvelous thing. And so, th also, so then Adam takes, in, in this place, he bears a kind of resemblance to God, even as likeness to the first cause, since he's, he's the first in the genus of rational animal. So in this way, his, his power over the species is not infinite, since, of course, it's propagated through uh, uh, successive generation. But nevertheless, he has a certain kind of absolute power over the, over the human nature, since it is utterly coextensive with his personal being at first yeah right. yeah it's amazing so, i mean oh so if you think about this in relation to uh pelagian uh views on original sin uh where it's transmitted um more by example or uh through custom or things like that um and there's a corresponding view of grace uh, a, a heretical view of grace that goes with that, where grace is sort of uh, the life of a of a an integral community, uh, teaching each other and sharing, you know, the good things of the world and being nice. Um, right. So, the the doctrine of of unity and consequently the doctrine of original sin that you just laid out um, also has a corresponding implication for our understanding of 
of grace and redemption in Christ. So maybe you, say more about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so. Yeah. So I guess you could start with saying that. So even though, like, I just made a strong argument for why you'd call Adam a son of God, mm-hmm. um, it's still it would only be meta- metaphorically said of him according to nature, but it would belong to him uh, properly as analogy, analogously speaking, uh, through grace, um, and that that. Uh, that that they had somehow this this Adam and then Eve would have been uh, the son and daughter of God according to this order of grace, uh, uh, which would have been the the perfect they would have been in perfect image of of God and their integral human nature uh, sustained by grace. Um, the problem is, of course, is that that image became disfigured. Uh, through through sin, and so what? According to divine providence, you have is then Christ comes not as the Son by adoption, but then the Son by uh, the Son by nature, right? Who comes to restore the image of man, um, and so, so you see this. Uh, yeah, I, I just finished teaching a course on uh, on the Trinity to. Uh, uh, some of the the brothers in the monastery uh, di San Benedetto in Monte and uh, Norcia, um, and we just were going through Augustine's uh, De Trinitate, and we finished with Thomas today. But Augustine lays out this very beautifully, where you see in the De Trinitate the 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 Son coming to restore the true Son coming to restore man in the image of God, and and make man true sons in the Son. Uh, according to grace, um, but that that image isn't uh, though it begins to be perfected in uh, the in in the life of the grace of the soul. Uh, you know, we still have to f- be finally and fully conformed to the image of the of the Son, right? And that's that's the work of the the Christian life, and then fin- ultimately completed in resurrection um yeah so um to go back to what you were saying about the resurrection of christ being as as an exemplar cause being the final um the final cause that is being a good and the common good uh the good that we desire in desiring the resurrection because it is found more in Christ than in us. It's in it, Christ's own resurrection is more good even for us than our own personal resurrection. And you see this very strongly in the liturgy, especially actually in the liturgy of the Ascension, which uh, in a way, the, the resurrection liturgy is still so, um, it, there's so much back and forth between between fear and triumph in, in the resurrection text because the apostles are also confused and so on. But, <laughs> but in the Ascension liturgy, there's this tremendous joy. And the joy is principally the joy that our head is has uh, risen and, and is ascended into glory. There's we're principally uh, rejoicing in Christ's good. And then as a consequence also in our own good, because he rose, his resurrection is the cause of our resurrection and the, we're related to the very flesh and bones that have ascended into heaven in him. Um, but in a way that the desire for our own resurrection arises from that love of his resurrection. So because we're, we, we're so happy about his resurrection, we want it to be, manifested in the resurrection of as many other people as possible. So we want to spread the gospel far and wide in a way to glorify Christ uh, because it gives him glory that his resurrection is the cause of the resurrection of so many other uh, persons. And, and that, that touches on a, uh, another important question, which is actually the question that was the occasion for my, my licentiate thesis. And that was, well, this has, what you said has to be true. But at the same time, we don't say that only those uh, in grace 
will rise again, right? But resurrection extends to, to all mankind, which is precisely the question I had was, well, how is that possible? Because it has, if it's, it has to be according to divine, and somehow Christ's resurrection is uh, the exemplar cause, and so somehow they're in, in, in an efficient cause of the resurrection of all mankind. So and somehow they're in contact with divine, all men are in contact with the, with the power of Christ's resurrection without necessarily that contact being the contact of grace. Right. So right, because the damned the damned rise again in at least bodily. That is, their bodies are reunited. So, but what, what is exactly. what's the right. what's the cause or occasion, I guess, of that contact then for the damned? Yeah, that's that's where I guess you push hard on this idea of Christ as the the new Adam, that he is the principle of our principle, that the that he's the that the the same one who is a son of Adam is also. Uh, he through whom Adam was made, right? And so, uh, you know, bizarrely, perhaps Adam could look at Christ and say, "Here is my true son, and here is my true father," uh, right? Just as David, you know, could say, "The Lord says to my Lord, you know, sit at my right hand," right? Um, uh, right. And as Saint Bernard of Clairvaux in in Dante's Paradiso, he says he addresses Our Lady as. Uh, um, Daughter of your son. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Filia del tuo filio, daughter of your son. Yeah. It's kind of circular circularity there. So, so that that betokens Christ Christ's place is have, where he has a kind of a natural union union with mankind and con, uh, and consequently all of creation really, um, and he and he recapitulates all all of mankind. This is further manifested. Uh, through sort of the logic of the firstborn that you see start spe- being spelled out in the Old Testament, where and uh, and Saint Paul pushes this theme, you know, Christ is the firstborn of cre- uh, uh, and that uh, the dead and the firstborn of creation, etc. Um, and so the idea is that the the firstborn has sort of a representative role on behalf of the whole of the family. The firstborn even usually has kind of a priestly role on behalf of the whole of the family. Um, and you see how important this idea of being firstborn is. And, uh, and you also see that firstborn doesn't always mean firstborn in the Old Testament. Um, <laughs> so uh, the firstborn uh, son of uh, Israel, for example, is Reuben. But Reuben, uh, because he sleeps with his father's concubine, is kind of demoted, right? And then the, the next two in line would be Simeon and Levi, but Simeon and Levi lose it because of uh, what they do to the, um, uh, the to Shechem uh, after they had raped his sister, and you know you kind of sympathize with them. But yeah, I mean they totally deserved it. <laughs> Fair enough, but but nevertheless they got in trouble. They put the family, and so it, so uh, it finally fell to Judah. Uh, Judah is the firstborn, and Judah becomes the firstborn. Even though he sold his brother into slavery, he makes up for it by offering himself in atonement, or, or sorry, not in atonement, in, uh, in place of his younger brother Benjamin. Yeah. As redemption. Yeah, as yeah. redemption. And so this is a beautiful, so you see, firstborn doesn't always mean firstborn, but the, it can move from individual, you can earn it, you can lose it. Uh, notably, of course, before that, Jacob and uh, Esau, right, uh, or Esau sells his birthright. So Christ then comes as a, as a firstborn and has this, this role as firstborn, and and it's firstborn of Israel, um, representative of the whole. But Israel, as God calls Israel in Exodus, Israel is my firstborn. So then Israel is kind of representative of all mankind. And so the, the point was never just to save individuals. The point is to save a whole. Uh, and this is the key to understanding, uh, in fact, the whole epistle to the Romans, right? Because the, the problem in Rome is boasting. And it's like the you know the the Gentiles saying, oh, you Jews had you know we're under the law and you never did it right, and then, then the Jews said we have the law we're so right, but but Paul says no, you're all sinners, you're all condemned, everybody's going to hell except for through faith in Christ. Now you can all be saved, and it's all alike, right? United and one in Christ, and the, the whole of the the members, and so and then Saint Paul then of course has a glorious exposition of of uh, of redemption. Uh, in, in Romans 8, right? And where he talks about the whole of creation, right? The whole of creation waits with eager longing and for the revealing of the sons of God, right? 
that uh, the creation was subjected to, to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. That's a uh, reference, it seems to me, to the, the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15. And because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. The, 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 the resurrection completes sort of this cosmic recapitulation that was begun in Christ. And we're kind of waiting for that to be fully accomplished uh, and revealed in, in us. Um, and, and so the sun, the, those who are in grace will, will rise to true resurrection. Um, and those who are, uh, who are not will rise only to eternal death. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But even that eternal death in a way contributes, um, in a kind of extrinsic way, it contributes to the common That's good right. of the whole human That's race. Right. Because even though the, the damned aren't themselves participating in the common good, nevertheless, their punishment manifests the divine justice mm-hmm. uh, and, and thereby contributes to the yeah, good of the exactly, whole. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, so the this inversion of, um, I guess, paternity and filiality, uh, or it's not really an inversion, it's sort of a... The, the cyclical I Christ is alpha and omega and everything right yeah. <laughs> right okay right, right. So, yeah. Yeah. a wheel a wheel <laughs> right. within a wheel yeah. as um, the prophets say. okay so uh, going back to the idea of the resurrection as the as the sort of uh, common good of, of mankind uh, not just individually but collectively um, so throughout the Old Testament there's this uh, this theme of, of the remnant um, you know the 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 few the the righteous vessel uh, that's selected by God, um, and there's a kind of winnowing, or maybe not a yeah, I guess you could say a winnowing uh, throughout this uh, the trajectory of of uh, human history uh, through to Israel, and then uh, you know onward into the the Roman period where you have these smaller and smaller groups representing um, the sort of hope of mankind for salvation. Um, but the hope of mankind is identified with their personal hope, right? So, uh, for instance, when, uh, when Esau flees, or sorry, when Jacob flees uh, from Esau uh, and, you know, goes and, and finds a wife and another wife and so on, uh, it's to save himself, but also within him, there's this idea that he's bearing the blessing of his father, which is God's blessing on Abraham, which is this hope of redemption for humanity, right? And then uh, if you continue all the way through to to Christ, uh, you have this odd, um, I guess, idea of this this one man who... Uh, becomes the well, he you know he's from a small family in a small town on the edge of a Roman colony, who then becomes the cause of the salvation of Israel, which becomes the cause of the salvation of the Roman Empire and of all the world, right? So it's it's kind of I don't know, it's uh, conceptually satisfying. <laughs> I guess is the most pathetic way to say it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, there's the yeah. I mean, you see that beautifully in in John the Baptist as the forerunner oh, of Christ. Say more, uh, with because his parents are barren, and they've been praying for decades for a, a child, and the answer of their prayer it's like you know this, in a way, very personal wish to have a, a child to to carry on their their name and so on, but it's the the beginning of the salvation of the whole world yeah yeah <laughs> in a way the forerunner of christ who comes as the answer to their prayer. yeah yeah it's um, there's that amazing unity between the desire for for personal happiness and the, and the cause or the occasion of uh universal salvation so like i don't think anyone could read the old testament and think that uh <laughs> that the sort of salvific plan of God for humanity was all about individuals and like just each individual caring only for their own salvation. I mean, it's absurd because the entire thing is about, you know, clans and families and nations and so on. 
Um, and yeah, I, I guess, I mean, it's a, that's kind of a uniquely Protestant, uh, error to make, uh, that, that kind of elides, um, redemption or the, the communal role of redemption and focuses it solely on, uh, the question of the individual as this sort of, uh, you know, I guess it, it, it destroys what Paul says about, uh, the body of Christ having structure, <laughs> right? Cause there's order, uh, there's order in humanity, uh, politically, civically, and there's order also within the church, uh, and there, there's order within the, the sort of celestial hierarchies of, of, um, of the saints and, and so on. Um, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and this, this connects to a theme that, uh, is kind of a running theme, um, on the Josias and, and here in the podcast, um, that the, the best goods are always common goods. And it sort of follows from the nature of the good that it wants to pour itself out. And the greater a good is, the more communicable it is, and therefore the more you want to communicate it. And you don't want to have it as your own possession, but you want to have it together with, with others, and you want to spread it as much as possible. Right. Here's, let me read you just one line from Space Salvi, where Benedict XVI thinks is getting at a similar point. After he goes to the whole... It's a Protestant individualism <laughs> problem. Yeah, good. <laughs> then, then he he says this. Um, our relationship with God is established through communion with Jesus. We cannot achieve it alone or from our own resources alone. The relationship with Jesus, however, is a relationship with the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. Being in communion with Jesus Christ draws us into his being for all. It makes it our own way of being. He commits us to live for others. But only through communion with him does it become possible truly to be there for others, for the whole. And I think Daniel's uh, explanation of the exemplar causality of Christ um, is really helpful for understanding what Pope Benedict is saying there. Because it is really... Uh, his resurrection is the cause of our salvation. And so it's really, we're really being conformed to him as the one who is, you know, giving the good super, sort of mm-hmm. super abundantly. Out of his fullness, we have all received, right? Uh, grace upon grace. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, a, uh, this is a very weird analogy, but um, so you were talking about Christ as the equi- or Adam first as the equivocal cause of mankind, right? Um, so that you could think about um, Adam, Adam as a horse, <laughs> and, <laughs> and man, what? And, what? And, Adam is not a horse. No, no. Bear with me. <laughs> All right, I'll bear with you. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this is very strange. For whatever reason, at some point, I started thinking about uh, forms this way years ago. Anyway, so Adam is a horse, and humanity is is like a herd of horses, and so that 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 equivocal cause is not just um, the cause of each individual horse's hoarseness, but also the horsiness of the herd. Uh, because uh, because the first horse uh, had all horsiness within itself, and so every act of a horse is common, right? Um, so if we if we extend that to to uh, Christ, um, Christ is the is the cause of our salvation, uh, is the cause not just of uh, the the individual beatitude of of people, but also the way that beatitude. Uh, is communicated among among men, right? And the way grace is communicated and, and the gospel and so on. But um, this then ties in, uh, I think, really well with, uh, with the idea of um, government uh, by means of sort of many intermediate causes that Thomas talks about uh, in the mm-hmm. Summa, where the... the proliferation of uh, intermediates between God and 
other creek well not other god and creatures uh is a superior manifestation of divine goodness than say a flat uh immediate government where everything is subject exclusively to god and to no, no creature uh so that in uh in the resurrection uh or i guess in the in the perfection that that Christ is cause of in his resurrection, uh, we, <laughs> how do I say this? I don't know. There, that basically it's, it's all bound up with uh, other people, that Christ is the cause of the resurrection of, um, you know, the Virgin Mary uh, and of John the Baptist and so on. And uh by means of these things uh, is also the cause of the resurrection of all of us. So that there's this, yes, this kind of uh, superior image of divine perfection and of Christ uh, by means of all of these other icons of that act. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is one reason why it's so important for to, to really, when you're trying to understand sacred scripture, to uh, also study metaphysics, you know, <laughs> and have some understanding of participation. Because if you look at a lot of scripture scholars um, who, you know, are excellent uh, linguists and, and, and uh, know a lot about um, the culture of, of ancient Palestine and so on, um, but then they, they run into these conceptual problems when they try to interpret, for example, uh, St. Paul talking about Christ's resurrection as causing our resurrection. And the the conceptual problems are not in the text that they're reading, even though they can read the text really well. The conceptual problems come from the fact that they don't have any philosophical yeah. formation, so they, yeah, yeah, yeah. they, they can't conceive right. of, of what's going right, on. Yeah. 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 Paul is not easy to read. I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah. that's right. If you, if you read, if you read, Saint Peter agrees and, yeah. and get it. <laughs> it's right. it's uh, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, yeah, it's there's a, a tremendous conceptual density. Anyway, well, um, we're approaching an hour, so uh, uh, should we have some concluding thoughts? Uh, Anything immediately string right. to mind that that needs to be said, or I could I could ask a final question, I guess. I I don't have anything immediately, but I, so if, so maybe if you had a good concluding question for us, I, we don't, could, know. I don't know. know. I, I do. We've got we've covered a lot of ground in some ways. But. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Uh, well. Um, okay, so one I, maybe the the sort of icing on the cake could be a, a quick reflection on uh, on the way the resurrection uh, is manifested in the government of uh, of the blessed after the the last judgment. So, like, oh. what is that? T- say something about that. What will the city of God be like after exactly. the last judgment? <laughs> yeah. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard tell. <laughs> uh. Well, you have you have many united in the common love and enjoyment of the the supreme good, the common vision of God, and there you there'll be an order there between them. Obviously, it's not one that's under threat in any way, so it's not doesn't need to be defended by the sword. There's the the neither the spiritual nor the the temporal sword will be uh, necessary anymore. Um, But there will be an order and uh, a a way in which the... um, I mean, in that that article on the causality of the resurrection in in the Summa, St. Thomas talks about how God... uh, the way fire heats first the air that's near it, and then through that air heats the distant body, in the same way, Christ, uh, uh, God, um, resurrects first the body that's hypostatically united to a divine person, and then through that body, other bodies. Um, 
And the, although in heaven, of course, each person will have an immediate vision of God that's not mediated by any creature. Nevertheless, there will be a, a kind of um, secondary mediation of glory through other creatures and a, and a joy in that. That is, we'll rejoice in the higher standing of the Blessed Virgin and the Apostles that, that will contribute as a way, in a way to the joy of heaven. Mm-hmm. So the part of what you're saying is that the, the perfection of, of government uh, in heaven um, is found in an order that's not based on domination, uh, but on uh, a sort of uh, graceful education, I guess, or, or transmission of the good from uh, those who are uh, glad to give to those who are willing to receive it, you know, onward, upward, toward toward God, while all are simultaneously maintained in place by an immediate vision of God uh, through, you know, direct union with him. And it, exactly. it seems to me that, that, that that's um, sort of gets at the heart of the, the fifth glorious mystery, right? Uh, the coronation of the Blessed Virgin, that that her coronation is 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 an eschatological event, which uh, in which it represents the glory that will belong to her, as uh, as all is revealed, like how all came to be saved through her uh, creaturely uh, mediation, right? And so each 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 per- soul in heaven will be uh, will correspond, as it were, to a, a jewel in the crown of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And, uh, and all of this hierarchy that's, of course, pointing to the Son and to the, the very life of, of the Trinity, uh, which we long to participate. Yeah. I have one more question before we, before we wrap up, um, which in, in 19th century critical uh, theology, the sort of the liberal 19th century German Protestants who... Uh, begin this new critical way of reading the Bible. You, you get, I think for the first time, the idea, um, I may be wrong about it being the first time, but anyways, you get this idea of parousiv hatsugerung, that is the delay of the parousia, the delay of the restoration of all things. So a lot of, a lot of uh, early historical critical um, interpretations of the Bible put a lot of weight on this. They say, well, you know, the early Christians, they were expecting <laughs> Christ to come back really soon yeah. and restore all things and the last judgment to be right away. And then they had to kind of come up with a with um, an alternate account when it, that didn't happen. You know? <laughs> I remember the first time I saw this was in, was in Bertrand Russell's book on why I am not a Christian. And I was so confused because it was such a, a strange and huh. lame uh, objection. Anyway, go on. Yeah. So my question would be, what I mean, does does the some of the things that we've been saying about the resurrection do they help to to clear up that uh, objection? Um, well, I don't. I guess I still, I still don't really understand the how the objection is an objection um, because it it seems manifest that the gospel writers communicate to us over and over again the failure of the disciples to to grasp <laughs> what <laughs> what they're being taught right and um it's there's a continued state um for christians of uh unsureness about uh when christ will come again when the, the parousia will take place and so it's natural that that you know 50 days after Pentecost, they would be in that state as well, expecting him to come back immediately or, you know, who knows? And, uh, yeah, so I just, I don't really, like, I, I guess if you had evidence that, that, (laughs) that Christ's life was sort of invented retroactively in order to sustain this new, uh, uh, post-Judaic cult, uh, (laughs) like in, in the face of the scandal of the, the death of it, its leader, sure, but I, there's no evidence for that. So, yeah, I mean, one thing that occurs to me that I mean, this is in a way kind of banal, 
point is that looking at salvation as a common good, there's a, a kind of fittingness to extending it to a, a vast multitude, even greater than the multitude of people that were actually alive at the time of the resurrection. So there's a kind of fittingness to um, allowing many centuries to pass, allowing many people to be incorporated into Christ's death and resurrection through baptism, to gather up this huge harvest of the centuries. This, you know, how, how much would the common good of the church have be less in a way that is not in its essential, because essentially the common good is God, who is infinitely good. But there's a kind of accidental perfection uh, in the intrinsic order of the city of God, which, you know, if there was no St. Augustine, no St. Thomas, all these great saints, they would never have lived if Christ had come back right away. Yeah, you know? although that's not a sufficient argument, obviously. It's not a sufficient argument, no. It, but but it, it does show a kind of fittingness. Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah and that's, that's, that seems like that's the only argument you could kind of give is a kind of fittingness, right? That why, why does he delay? I don't know. I mean, because it's fitting that he delay. Um, but, it, it, I mean, it's interesting that... Uh, put me in the mind of uh, what Thomas says about baptism. He, he he addresses the questions like, "Well, why doesn't uh, is it possible for baptism to uh, to remedy the defects of nature, like even bodily defects?" And he said, "Well, well yeah, it, it technically is within the power of, the, of of baptism to do that. That that somehow we could be already bodily restored through the sacrament of baptism, but that effect is not." in fact produced because that's not what uh, Christ desires. And the reason for that is because there's a certain kind of perfection in our ability to uh, participate the sufferings of Christ. And that somehow, somehow, and this this gets a, another thing I, I've written on and thought about, but actually I won't go into much. <laughs> and that is uh, the importance of, of death and suffering for man. That somehow the de death and uh, suffering and uh, love and joy become deeply are deeply connected for mankind, and uh, it's it's kind of a mysterious thing to work out, and it would take uh, more time than we have. Um, but that's necessary, and I think that's for the individual, but also in a way for the whole of mankind. Um, to, and the, 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 there's some sort of historical realization or or, or working out of this. Of the, of the of what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, uh, that Saint Paul mentions, that has to be accomplished, um, and you know, and, and and Revelation speaks something about until the something is oh, I, the the phrase is gone from me now. I can't think, but but it has you have you have to reach the the full measure. The full measure of suffering has to be endured. The full measure, and and that. And that's that's kind of maybe frightening in some ways, but there, there, there's there's something about that 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 uh, is is necessary finally to for a kind of perfection and completion uh, to uh, mankind and his salvation. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, it's interesting. So thinking about these uh, these critical scholars to think about. Um, counter narratives that one can devise to, in order to undermine uh the truth right so for instance um uh, you can oppose to uh potter's uh wonderful uh thought on the the sort of um the fittingness of the plurality of the saints and the abundance of their merits uh you, you could just say like i can imagine some 19th century uh uh dry scholar saying oh well you know you're just importing a a, a medieval a metaphysics into this uh, Palestinian cult and then it's totally foreign right and then you, you could also say to uh, in response to the the idea of filling out what's lacking in the in the sufferings of Christ or the you know that that phrase in Revelation which I also remember but I can't place place my finger on it but basically that that there there's a moment at which point the tribulations of mankind have reached their uh their their fulfillment right and then uh god sort of moves on to the next phase um you could just <laughs> oppose to that some sort of heraclitean 
vision of uh, you know all, 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 of, all of nature is about consuming one another and dominating. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because um, sure you know you can you can have that view of things, but um, even I, it, what understanding does it add to to anything? You know, um, there's no there's no unity. Uh, of causation in in a Heraclitean vision of the universe. There's no, I mean, aside from the question of of the meaningfulness of things, uh, things just don't really make any sense. So it just, aside from uh, natural pessimism, I don't see, you know, there's there's not much reason to, to hold to such views anyway. Well, I think uh, on that note, <laughs> um, well, it's it's been it's been great. I think this was very edifying for me, at least. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, you guys enjoyed it. It was it was good. I think. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And, thank you so uh, much. Yeah. Thanks for joining yes, us. Uh, blessings to you for Palm Sunday tomorrow and for Holy Week. Yes. We enter into the the mysteries. That'll be wonderful. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, and and you know, uh, a happy Easter to you both. Happy uh, Easter, in the future. Yes. Happy Easter. Okay. Happy Easter.